Discipline and consistency separate the good from the great. Welcome to the Millionaire Woman Show, where we'll be discussing leadership, business, human potential, inspiring you to live rich from the inside out. Unlock your creativity, stretch out of your comfort zone, break through your barriers, take inspired action, and achieve epic results. Now here's your host, three-time best-selling author, speaker, and certified executive coach, Deborah Kozowski. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Millionaire Woman Show. I'm your host, Deborah Kozowski, and today we are talking about a topic that I know is really important, and it's become somewhat of a buzzword, cultural intelligence. And I have Stefan M. Branch. He's an author of this brand new book, which you can see I got some fancy tabs here on the side, already, you know, diving in and highlighting things. He is the author of Cultural Intelligence in the 21st Century, Driving Inclusion, Revenue and ESG. As the founder and CEO of World Trade Resource, he has led privately held and multi-billion dollar publicly traded companies in the U.S., Asia, Latin America, and Europe. During his tenure at those companies, he is responsible for a total of 55 countries and lived on five continents. He has a graduate degrees from George Washington University and is a graduate of the Harvard Law School's program on negotiation. He is multilingual and has served multiple terms on the board of directors of National Foreign Trade Council, he has been an instrumental in global IPOs while simultaneously creating explosive growth to meet very high expectations of investors and boards. The secret to his success is that he fully grasps how leadership, cultural intelligence, inclusion coalesce to create extraordinary leaders with transformative impact on revenue, business value, valuation, and ESG. Please welcome to the show, Stefan M. Branch. Thank you. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So first of all, I like to ask all authors, how does it feel to actually see and talk about the book? Because I know it, it's a total process as you put together a book like this, but I am curious as how, how are you feeling right now with having it be out on the market for people to ingest your knowledge? Relieved. Relieved. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, relieved. I guess that's probably the best word. Uh, people have been asking me to write a book for about five, six years. And uh, it was, a, it was a year's worth of work that took my eye off the business. Um, was it worth it? Yeah, I think it was because I believe in this. I believe that cultural intelligence and, you know, you can look at my, my, son, my son, excuse me, I have the hiccups. And <laughs> my son um, just went through the college application process. And the thing that they were most interested in was not the IQ, the EQ, it was the CQ. And I think that's what organizations are finally starting to understand. If you look at a lot of our academic clients like NYU and others, or our corporate clients like Caterpillar, Pfizer and Roche and Credit Suisse and, and all the, you know, uh, Meta, Google, they're looking at the importance of CQ and how that plays into leadership. 
And I think a lot of people think that it's a soft skill. It's not. It's uh, directly tied to the bottom line, whether the beginning of my career was in mergers and acquisitions. And so how do you negotiate with the Chinese? How do you negotiate with the Japanese, the Brazilians, the Italians, as we talked earlier? Mm-hmm. How is that different? And it literally can translate into billions of dollars in savings in terms of acquisition costs. So I think when you think about leadership and team cohesion and the way you drive a business, it's, uh, it's pretty incredible. So it's, that's why I wrote the book. Um, it's also about, you know, when I think about inclusion, I think about creating cultures of inclusion around the world. And I know that diverse doesn't have a great sort of uh, definition right now, right? And so whether I'm working with a corporate customer in Asia or in Europe or in the U.S., it's about, in, you know, creating those cultures of inclusion, but also how do you drive revenue and how do you tie that back to ESG and the social part of ESG? Right. Because, you know, when I think about cultural intelligence and I'm just going to bring it forth because for some people, this might be a very new word. You know, we've heard emotional intelligence. We've heard about social intelligence. And, you know, when we think of those words, it is related to the soft skills. So when we think of cultural intelligence, and I know in your book, you also refer to cross-cultural management, which sometimes I think, you know, when people talk about diversity, I almost like that terminology better because it, it really explains a lot more. Um, but diversity, I know, also touches on many other areas that are not maybe addressed in culture cross-cultural management, but can you tell everybody a little bit more about what CQ is and cultural intelligence and why it is so important? And I I know you've touched on a little bit of that already. So I think that um, CQ, simply put, is the ability to communicate across cultures and boundaries, right? It's the ability to communicate across cultures and boundaries. It's the ability to... um, implement certain cultural competencies that are going to improve the way you lead, the way you manage, the way you show up in a, in a, in a business world. Um, I work with a lot of global leaders from Fortune 500 companies, Fortune 50 companies, Fortune 10 companies, mm-hmm. CEOs, executives who really need to understand how do I, how, how do I communicate differently with the Japanese versus the Germans versus the Brazilians versus the Chinese, right? How do I do that? And how does that show up? One of the things that you talked about in the book, you know, and I, and what I love, really love about your book, as I had mentioned, is the case study approach, to the storytelling of, you know, where some things have gone wrong because people misunderstood or, you know, wondering why someone's not speaking up in a meeting. And I'm really understanding what some of the, barriers could be to people understanding that if they get stay in a place of curiosity and wanting to learn about maybe why that person didn't speak up versus go into well shouldn't you be speaking up at a meeting you're at this level and you should have right. some input right so one of the things that i notice a lot is with leaps and this is at the ceo level we talk about dialing down dominance dialing up engagement and inclusion, the balance of the three, right? So how do those look 
right? I always ask leaders, when you walk away from a meeting, and this is even the Gates Foundation, when you walk away from a meeting, did you do those three things? And they will say, well, you know, some people are extroverts. Some people are introverts, right? Right? Mm -hmm. And so did you... (laughs) Is it a result of being an extrovert or an introvert, or is it a result of being uh, a good leader? And so what I would say is, if you have a Japanese or a Chinese or an Asian person in the meeting, and you're thinking about sort of their contribution, how are they contributing to the meeting? And I'm working with a CEO right now of a Fortune 50 company, and he will say to me, you know, well, naturally, some people are introverts and extroverts. That's not true. There are cultural differences, to your point, Deborah. Yeah. Um, are people like the Japanese and the Chinese are more hierarchical than the U.S. Americans or the Canadians, right? Um, and so that plays into the conversation, that plays into the discussion, that plays into the presentation. Uh, I'm working with a head of sales right now from a major Fortune 50 U.S. pharmaceutical company. And he's saying to me, how can I increase sales in Germany and Brazil? And what are the differences between the two? Well, Germans are very low context. They're very direct. They're very to the point. Get down to business. Three slides, black and white, bullet, bullet, bullet. Go to Brazil and it's more context, more color, more graphics, more information, right? More um, more color. And if you try to apply the same to both locations, it's not going to work. And so when we talk about cultural intelligence and people say, oh, it's a soft skill, it's not. It's bottom line revenue, it's profitability, it's brand, it's strategy, it's sales, it's marketing, it's operations, it's team performance, it's team cohesion. It applies to every single thing. Across, across the business. And there's a tactical approach to it. Like from what you said, you know, one of the greatest downfalls of a business is not understanding that relationships had to be built. That's So there's something called a trust equation. Credibility, respect. Those, those are the things that we build through relationships. And a lot of times U.S. Americans don't understand that. They come at it and can, Canadians, excuse me, Canadians are pretty much the same way in this respect. Mm-hmm. They come at it with a position of why do I need to spend time building a relationship? Why do I need to spend time building a rapport? Why do I need to res- spend my time and money, especially as a New Yorker, building that? Okay. It's because that's the way we build trust, credibility, and respect. Those three things, which are the way, frankly, business contracts are, are, are built, right? If you think yeah. about it. Yeah. And I, I find it such an, uh, you know, when you think about it, it just seems like such a huge oversight, you know, in North America to not see that as um, when I when I think of other cultures and I think, you know, when they have a siesta or they take time just to relax and converse and hang out, that they really get to deepen those relationships. So let me let me comment on. I'm coaching right now a um, a senior vice president of legal for a major Fortune 10 company, 
And the second coaching session, he said to me, um, I asked my cab driver if he agreed with you. I love, right? What a great way to leave. I asked my cab driver if he agreed with you that the people in Barcelona are more laid back than the people in Madrid. And I said, well, first of all, why are you asking your cab driver? Why are you asking him these questions? I don't think he's probably a professional. But I said, I'm interested. What did he say? And he said, he disagreed with you because all the lazy people are in Madrid, not in Barcelona. And I said, oh, okay. So you think that people who are high relationship and low time are lazy? Is that what you think? As a New Yorker? He said, yeah, I do. And I said, you're completely wrong. I said, they're high relationship people. They spend more time. I'll give you an example of Canada. So I was coaching an executive very powerful female executive. When I came to know her, she was with a company called Vertex Pharmaceutical. She had pre previously been with uh, Bristol Myers Squibb. So I knew from her questionnaire that there had been issues. And I said, what happened? Can you tell me in one sentence, what happened to you when you went to Montreal? And she said, I didn't take the coaching because I grew up in Algeria, speaking to her French. Mm -hmm. And I was... Paris for 10 years. So I thought, what do I need the cultural coaching for? So off she goes to Montreal. And I said, so how was it one of the worst experiences of your life? And she said, because I didn't take the time to build a credit in the bank before I tried to cash in. Wow. And I said, okay, so you didn't take the time to build a relationship. So why not? And she said, you know, I had a lot of objectives, I had a lot of goals, I had a lot of targets to hit. I just didn't think it was that important. And I said, so what was the difference if you had been in Paris? And she said, the difference was Paris is very hierarchical. It's a very hierarchical society. And I didn't realize the Quebecois or not. And so I go in to Montreal, fully assuming that my team is gonna engage with me. They're going to embrace what it is that I'm trying to do. And six months in, when I needed them to work with me, they worked against me, right? Um, and so I think when we think about the performance management and the cohesion and the way this shows up in, in leadership, it's, it's insurmountable. I mean, it's huge. So she resigned. She quit. She was a top 100 leader. When I came to know her, she had moved to a different company, obviously. Both are clients. But it was an interesting story because I thought, you know, wow, that... That really says it all, right? It's fascinating. I just, I just think about how we take that so much for granted, that trust, credibility, and respect, and how it can be a game changer, you know, in really getting to know people so that, that you could have that buy-in when you need it six months down the road. Mm -hmm. can, can you share a little bit about what, ESG is and how you can learn about those companies' ratings. Because I, I know you gave some different um, examples of companies like Gap and Di Diago. Um, yeah. Diageo. Diageo. Yeah. And um, I would be curious because I didn't even know what ESG was until I had your book come across my desk. And I was like, okay, I'm going to investigate this. And then I wanted to learn how I could find out where the ESG was. And right. I'm sure our listeners probably will as well. So environmental, social, and governance. 
And if you look at the way organizations and their share value, their stock, their share value, right, is rated, oftentimes it's tied to ESG. The E, environmental, is pretty easy to accomplish, right? It's setting environmental you know, guidelines, whether it's a P&G or a Pfizer or a Hoffman LaRoche, they're setting really good environmental guidelines. The governance is easy because it's it's governing integrity, um, the top companies in the world. The S is the piece that's really, really challenging because it's around social equity. The problem is in the US, people think of social equity as being a black and white conversation. <laughs> and it's not a black and white conversation. It's a conversation that has to do with doing business in other cultures around the world, whether it's Canada, whether it's um, France, whether it's Germany, whether it's Spain, Brazil. It's about how you do business in other cultures in other countries and how do you show up as an organization. And so um, what we do is look at how do you tie the performance metrics back to the S and ESG. And so a lot of organizations in the U.S. will look at the social piece, right? They will look at just the social equity as it's defined U.S. standards. It's a black and white conversation. What I'm suggesting as someone who's lived on five continents and worked in over 50 countries is you need to look at how that shows up in India. How does it show up in Germany? How does it show up in Canada? How does it show up in the U.S.? It's not the same in every culture in every country. It's different. It's very different. And why is it important? If you look at the um, the alpha millennial generations as a whole, they want to invest in organizations that have similar philosophies to their own, right? They want to invest in organizations that, and they want to work for companies that have good social equity practices that believe in good governance, good environmental policies, and they have shared values. And so right now there's a lot, in, especially in the US, that's being politicized around ESG. And they're saying, well, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a Democrat Republican thing. It's not. I mean, I will tell you whether you, <laughs> If you're not part of the millennial generation or the alpha generation or the Z generation, it doesn't really matter what you think, it's not going to change. It's about invest in organizations who have similar shared policies and philosophies. And that's just the way it is. And so it has a direct impact on stock prices and share value. I live in New York, every conversation I have with private investment equity companies, is around that. How does it impact share value and price? They're not, not really interested in having a conversation about inclusion. What they're interested in is how does it impact your share value and your, your policies, right? So it's um, it's something that we can't we, we can't deny. It's here, it's now, it's not going away. So what gets measured gets managed. So what are some of the things that need to be included in those metrics to be considered to get, to want to get those results, to get that share value? So I have a company right now that we're working with that you and everyone on the planet would know. They're a top 
five company, right? Think internet, think, you know, when you go to the internet and you type in something you're looking for, think that company, right? Mm -hmm. They know they are, um, don't have enough female representation. They know they don't have enough diversity. They know they don't have enough uh, multi-generational diversity. But they also know that their employees have been destroying them in the marketplace because they speak out about it. And so they want to know where are employees in their knowledge of inclusion and diversity? Where are they? Do they understand the difference in racial biases? Do they understand the differences in LGBTQ plus and how that impacts that diversity? Uh, and it's, you know, we've got a company right now, a Fortune 10 company that we're working with that they sent a same-sex Christian couple, Black, into Saudi Arabia. The penalties for being gay in Saudi Arabia are death by stoning. So they left six months into the assignment. They came back to the U.S. and they sued the company. And they won, rightfully so. Because they said, look, you put us at risk. You put us in, an, in a situation where we could have been killed, literally. Mm -hmm. And so, I don't know. I mean, there are all kinds of different ways you can take this conversation. You can take it towards inclusion or a major retail organization that we work with in New York City that didn't understand. And 50% of their consumers are Latinos. But they weren't targeting that brand. They weren't targeting that market. They weren't targeting that demographic. So how do they buy differently? How do they think differently? How do they think mm -hmm. about brand differently? How are the conversations different, right? And so cultural intelligence is understanding how do I approach, how do I meet you where you are? Right. How do I, and, and that's part of what I uh, today in preparation, Deborah, for the conversation you and I were going to have. I really wanted to know more about you. I wanted to know where does she live? Does she have a family? Where does she come from? What's her thing? Right. So that I could meet you where you are and in your your audience. And I didn't have the, the benefit of that information, even though I did a fair amount of research on my own. I didn't have that benefit. And that made me feel very uncomfortable because in order to meet you where you are in your audience, I need to know those things. Those are very important points. I thought, you know, we're, I just take it for granted. We're just chatting it up a bit, you know, but it is very important to meet people where they're at and really go with where the conversation is going. And, um, I really value that. And it's very interesting when you think about when, the things that I was thinking about when you were talking about when you have a Latino group who's doing the most purchasing. And then I think about all the kind of melting pot or mosaic of what we have in the world or in New York City, for example, you know, we have everything. And how do you target marketing so that it could be, you know, inclusive and reach as many people in a target audience as possible. So I can see how you have to be very tactical in your approach to many things. So I'll give you an example, major fortune 10 pharmaceutical company that you would know, household name, 
um, the senior vice president of sales comes to me and he says, we're having real challenges in getting our sales up in Germany versus in Brazil. And I said, so are you using the same pitch? Are you using the same deck? Are you using the same approach? And he said to me, of course we are. Why wouldn't we? Same solutions, same products, same services. Why would we change it? Here's why you would change it. The Germans are very, very black and white. It's very direct. It's very to the point. Give me three slides, black and white, boom, 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 boom. And I'm done. Brazilians are very, where the graphs, where the charts, where's the color, where's the context? Give me all that, right? And so if you're using the same approach for both locations, you're not going to win. And so when organizations, and I know your, your population, if I look at your, uh, your webcast and your podcast, very strong female leaders. If you look at that and how that re resonates and how their approach can shift and change and pivot and flex, we don't talk about changing who you are. We change, we, we think about competencies, right? There are nine competencies, mm -hmm. relationship, management, um, status attainment. Those are the things that we look at. How does that apply to the way you do business when you walk into a room? I can walk into a room and as soon as I know where is the person from, where do they, what country are they? Where do they grow up? Where do they, where, where do they spend their time? I can immediately think, okay, Deborah, because of where she grew up and how she grew up, she's going to be high relationship, low relationship. She's going to be high time, low time. She's going to be, and a lot of people say this is personality. It's not personality. It's not personality at all. Personalities don't change, hopefully, right? They don't change. It's a competency. It's a skill set. And so I can read the room and flex where I need to flex in order to meet the room and to achieve optimum performance. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, you know, when you talk about the cultural competencies, especially, you know, that they impact not only business, but also outside of business, you talk about time, relationships, communication, and hierarchy. And you'd also talked about earlier a little bit about dialing down the dominance. And I, and I find that very interesting because I think people are used to having a hierarchical um, different, you know, in an organization that they, you know, they look up to that leader. And when they come to a meeting, it's kind of like going to a doctor's appointment. You see the white coat and they, they freeze up or they don't want to talk. And I like how you talked about the dialing down and, in dominance and really being able to understand how these cultural competencies can, you know, be transitional to the time relationships, communication and hierarchy. So the research shows 85% of the time, the decision gets made by the dominant language of the company. So think about that, right? If you're English speaking, 85% of the time, the decision is made by the dominant. And so when I ask leaders, when you walk out of a meeting, and this is like Fortune 50 companies, when you walk out of a meeting, ask yourself those three questions. Did you dial down dominance? Did you dial up engagement? And did you balance for inclusion? And they will always say to me, yeah, well, you know, Deborah is an extrovert. She likes to talk. So she talks more than the rest. That's not what we're dealing with. What we're dealing with, it's your point, Deborah, is hierarchy. 
we're dealing with the way people communicate. I just did a uh, an intervention with a major corporation, top 50 company. And they called me in and they said, the whole negotiation is falling apart. We're buying a pharma company in France and US Americans, we wanna know what the problem is. So when I sat down with US Americans, I said, if you could tell me in one sentence, what's going wrong? And they said, nah, the French show up, they don't talk a lot, they're not that engaged. When I went to the French, I said, can you tell me in one sentence what your opinion is? And they said, the US Americans never shut up long enough for us to say anything. <laughs> right? Oh my so goodness, what, yeah. What that means is we have a different definition of a hierarchy, a different definition of time. And so right. the French are going to be more polite. They're, they're going to acquiesce and they're going to say, well, you know, Deborah's more senior, so maybe she has an opinion. Let's hear from her first, right? Let me let her talk first. It's also English may not be their first, second, or third language. Right. Time needed to process, to synthesize, to analyze before they react to yeah. the, the question, right? You know, that got me thinking, because when you were talking about introvert and extrovert, it also makes me think of people who are external processors versus internal processors, the ones that have to walk away and say, what just happened there? Let me just kind of think about this. And then I can respond after the fact. Whereas I know, um, you know, in certain cultures, that decisiveness and that decision making, you know, they want it to be more immediate. So I'll, I'll give you an example of a top 100 leader from Nestle. They moved her from New York City to Mexico City. Mexico City is very hard. Um, the Chilangos are very, very hard people and they won't deny it. So 90 days in, they get the 360 feedback and it's horrible on her. And so the chief HR officer calls me up and says, look, we have a problem here. We have to fix it. We want you to figure out what's going on. And so when I sat down with her, I said, let me ask you, what are you doing differently now in Mexico City than you were doing in New York? And she said, well, I'm not doing anything differently. And I said, that's the problem. Okay. So here's what's interesting, talking about hierarchy. Her feedback scores, engagement scores came back as she was indecisive. She was weak. She wasn't a solid leader. Why? Because in hierarchical societies, whether it's Mexico City Japan or even Italy, right? Or Spain or France. They're accustomed and they're trained in a very specific way to be directive. So I'm your leader. I'm going to direct you. I'm going to tell you what to do. I'm going to issue goals and quotas and all of that. In the US and Canada, we're trained the opposite. We're trained to be very collaborative very facilitated. My role as a leader is not to direct you. My role is to be collaborative, right? Is to facilitate conversations. So those same principles are not effective in those, in those locations. And so you have to figure out where's the middle ground, right? And it starts with understanding if I'm going to lead a team in Mexico City or in Spain or in France or in Italy, I need to recognize and know they've not been trained or taught to be facilitated and collaborative. So I have to invite them to the middle ground. 
I have to invite them to come to the middle to be inventive. And so I have to say, Deborah, the next meeting we have, I want you to come prepared to talk about these three things. I want you to challenge me. I want you to debate. I want you to push back. I want you to tell me, I don't know what I'm talking about, right? And so there, there's very, very substantial differences in the way people lead and manage and the way we're taught in our educational systems as well. So how does one get to know how to do that? Like, I, I'm thinking, like we were sharing that I have been taking Italian and learning all these different things. And I think, you know, other than, you know, reaching out to my pen pal and learning more about, you know, specific scenarios or questions, how does one gather that cultural knowledge so that they can play with some of those unspoken rules of the playbook you talk about in the workplace? So there are nine cultural competencies. There's a, a, a psychiatrist, a psychologist back in the 1950s, 1955 to be exact, Dr. Gerda Hofstede. And he came up with 30 different cultural dimensions that he felt were important to the human condition. And they're still used today. Um, there are about nine of those between five and 10 that are important to the business world. Mm -hmm. And so it's time. We have a different relationship with time, right? If you look at anyone in Latin America, anyone in Asia, anyone in Italy, Spain, France, we have a different relationship with time. What does that mean? It means time is not the most important thing to us. The relationship is the most important thing to us. And that's a huge impact. It has a huge impact on the business. So time, communication, relationship, status attainment, hierarchy, those are the things that matter. And so understanding how those differences impact the business is what's important. And you can learn how to flex. Deborah can learn when she walks into a room, if she's sitting down with Italians and French and Spanish, she needs to flex if she wants to be successful. And by successful, I mean negotiating the latest merger acquisition. I mean, creating a new brand, a new strategy. I have a, a New York client who is head of sales and marketing for a major, major corporation. She recently went to Vienna to meet with her head of sales and marketing. German, Viennese, right? They're meeting in Vienna. I said, how'd it go? And she said, it was horrible. I said, what happened? she said, I'm a high relationship person. And she is, which is not usual for a New Yorker, right? And I said, okay, what happened? And she said, I felt like I needed to build a rapport the first 20 minutes, right? First time meeting these people, I needed to build some sort of rapport. She said, 20, 30 minutes in, I felt disrespected. I felt dismissed. I felt like they weren't listening to me. And so I got angry and she said, exercising emotional intelligence. I didn't show that, but I said, okay, here's what we're here to talk about. You're not meeting the numbers. You're not meeting the data. You're not meeting the metrics. What did the Viennese and the Germans say? Great. Now we have something to talk about. Ouch. <laughs> right. She led with relationship over data and being direct. Right. It's counter. So when people say it doesn't matter, it matters a whole lot because if Deborah is holding that meeting and if she's leading with the relationship, 
this. I'll tell you what they're thinking. They're thinking she's shallow, she's not a good leader. She's not precise. She's really not good at her job. Right. Versus the pivot. And so it matters how you show up culturally mm-hmm. in that environment. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll share this with you. There are 193 countries recognized by the United Nations. There are 200 in total. We cover all 200. Why? Because we have clients that do business in Iran. We have clients that do business in Azerbaijan, okay? So out of 200 companies on the planet, there are about 190 that are high relationship. Think about it. Scandinavians, US Americans, Germans, and Australians are low relationship. And US Americans are profound in saying, oh, the way we do business is the best way. It's not true because the way you see people show up in a business, the productivity, the way they get things done is profoundly different. I work with one of the top three business leaders on the planet right now. And he will say to me, I think the American way is the better way because we get things done. So we did a research study with his organization. And I said, so out of all the meetings your people have at the top line, right? At the top line, the Mm C-suite, you have five things on an agenda. You never accomplish more than three of those things. And you have to schedule repeat meetings. So when I have people coming in from other cultures and other countries, they will ask me, why is it U.S. Americans spend so much time posturing? Why is it Deborah spends so much time in the meeting talking about herself and the work and everything that she's doing to make it better? Why? Because we're low relationship. We're not doing that outside the meeting. So the only time I have, and that Deborah has to impress me, is this during that meeting. That's it. That's where you're building your brand. That's where you're building your equity. That's where you're building your, your profile. But if you were in 190 other countries that were high relationship, you would have done that outside the meeting. So when you came to the meeting, you would come to the meeting to get stuff done, to make decisions, and you would achieve all five things on the agenda. So, yeah, it's 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 just a very different way of uh, of thinking about it. You know, it's just. I'm going to have to do delve more into this topic even more just because it's it's just fascinating how that pivoting, being able to flex your style from country to country to still get the results that you want. But knowing that each place requires a different approach mm-hmm. and that what you do in one place isn't going to be successful in another. However, it doesn't mean that you're what you're doing is wrong. If I took you to another country, it just means it doesn't fit for that country or that culture. It's flexing. It's flexing. So a lot of times, I mean, U.S. Americans are the worst. (laughs) They will come to the coach and they will say, Oh my goodness, you're, you're trying to change who I am. No, we're not. It's a competency. It's a business competency. It's no different than negotiating. It's no different than public speaking. It's no different than presentation. It's no different than any of those skills. You're learning a business competency. And so when you come to the table, 
you're exercising that. And it's knowing when to do that for optimal results. I mean, there's a reason the Chinese will tell you they love negotiating with U.S. Americans. Love it. Why? It's easy. They don't have to do anything. Because U.S. Americans hate silence. We hate silence. True. Time is money. Tick-tock, 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 tick-tock. Yeah. So if you present an offer and I don't say anything, you're going to negotiate with yourself. So it's a, it's a different mindset of the way people interact and the way they negotiate and the way they sell, the way they build brand, the way they build strategy, the way they build their profile, all of it. It's, uh, look, it's, it's something I've been doing my entire career. As you said, I've lived on five continents and I've worked in over 50 countries. And people have often asked me, you know, how is it that you came in in 36 months, you cut costs in half? You literally cut costs in half and you quadruple sales. Because I understand sales. I understand how people do business in different cultures and different countries. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> in my head, I'm like, you look so young to have been in all these places and worked in all these places. I'm like, how That's old is he sweet. really? <laughs> sweet of you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah. I have a question for you about this because as I'm sitting here is how do you integrate more of this knowledge? Is there going to be like an assessment that's going to come out of this book? Is there maybe even a board game for teams to work on to understand how this works? The book, there are a number of what I would call assessments, profile surveys, okay. where it, it prompts you to, to look at that and say, okay, here's how I would respond. And here's why maybe that wasn't the best response. Right. Right. Um, and so someone asked me this, you know, you're giving away your coaching. You're giving away the stuff that you charge a lot of money for. Why are you doing it? Um, I have a multiracial family. I have a multicultural family. I have been someone, I speak a few different languages. I believe that if we can truly understand how that shows up in the world, socially and business, that, that bias, that, that race, that, all of that just kind of falls to the side, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, because if you, if you understand and even gender, I mean, I'm looking at your, your podcast and I'm looking at, you know, kind of how you show up with your demographic. Um, we track, we can tell you as an organization, we can tell you what's going on with women in India. What's going on with women in Japan? Right. What I mean by that, I mean, educationally, are they moving up the corporate ladder? Mm -hmm. If they're not, why? Why aren't they? What's happening? Why is it in India that it takes women 10 more meetings, 10 more meetings than men to open a business? 10 more meetings. That's astounding, right? How does that show up culturally? So I don't know. I get really passionate about this work. I feel like um, it impacts every area of what we do. As I said, from operations to team performance, team cohesion, brand, sales, marketing, as a CEO, 
across the board. I, <laughs> I'm um, not that often that I can get gobsmacked, but I tell you, this is something that I'm really going to dig deeper into your work and really learn so much more because, you know, thinking that it takes a woman 10 more meetings or it's, you know, being in North America, I think sometimes we get caught in this thing that everybody does it the way we do. And, you know, learning of some of the inequities or, you know, just differences more than anything of what is happening in other countries and how was it socialized that way to really, you know, dig deeper and using that analogy of the onion, I guess, pulling back the layers to really understand how people grow within companies, how strategy is developed, how to get to the C-suite, you know, to get the results that you want for driving that revenue. So many factors. And, you know, I think the most important thing is realizing, although it seems to come, cultural intelligence seems to be that soft skill, it like truly isn't, even though there's a little bit in there, it truly is a skill of mastery. And uh, I congratulate you because I can um, see how your experiences have really uh, read to this um, rich writing of this book. And I want to thank you. I want to say one more thing. So um, a few years ago, uh, we were living in Spain. My son was going to a private British school. And I thought, okay, I need to uh, <laughs> to embrace embrace this, right? And he said, okay, we need uh, an iPad. It's got to be the newest, latest, great. He already had an iPad, but it had to be the, the newest, latest, greatest, which was 1300 bucks in Spain. I was like, okay, fine. So knowing the Spanish culture, I allocate two hours. I will tell you in New York City, I can buy an iPad on Fifth Avenue in 10 minutes. I can walk in, get the iPad, walk out of it. Yeah. So I go, allowing two hours out of my business day. I get there, there's a long line. And so when I finally get to the front, to the woman, I said, what's going on? And she said, what do you, what do you mean? And I said, well, why is this long line out the door? And she said, well, you know, I'm greeting you. So I'm here to find out what you need. And I said, well, what I need is an iPad. It's simple. And so she said, okay. She said, so you're next. So I go to another person and the next person says, what are you here for? How can I help you? I want to help you. And I said, okay, I need an iPad. So <clears throat> they take me to the person. And so as I'm sitting there, I'm like, okay, this is, we're an hour in. And it was two hours before I got out the door. And I thought, okay, this is a cultural lesson. What's going on here? And so I asked the woman, I said, can you tell me why there's an hour and a half wait outside the door to get in here for a 10 minute process? And she said, I know, I've been talking to headquarters we need a different structure, right? Right. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, they have a certain algorithm they use in the US. So that algorithm works because in the US, get in, get out. But can you imagine doing that in Spain? 
And I said, I can't imagine. And that's what I wanted. That's what I came here for. To get in, get out. And it took me two hours of my lost day to spend over a grand. And she said, I know. She said, but we don't do that here culturally. We wouldn't let Deborah come in and just kind of figure it out on her own, right? Culturally. Right. Yeah. We need to connect. We need to have a conversation. We need to um, have a meeting of the minds. And so I wonder how long would that business model stay, right? Because mm -hmm. if you're having to wait that long and you don't think it has an impact on your revenue, you're wrong, completely wrong. Because it shouldn't take me two hours to go in and get an iPad for something that would take me 10 minutes on Fifth Avenue in New York. Right. And so there's no adjustment. There's no adjustment in the algorithm, in the employee size. And so that's when I start to look at, you know, how does it impact bottom line revenue? It's huge. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't think they will be sustainable in that location because it, they don't understand the culture. Yeah. And so, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting about that because then I'm start, starting to think about multi-generational or some people who maybe want that extra time with, with them. They're okay with it. And then I think, you know, the majority of people I know, they're going there on a mission, they're grabbing their stuff and they're out. Because yeah. um, as my kids will say, they'll say, that's two hours of my time. I'm never going to get back in my life. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. So to really well, understand that. I mean, one last example I'll give you. Um, a major Fortune 50 company asked me to shadow um, a chief HR officer. And so I was on the call. Her team did not know it. They were from France, Spain, Italy, Brazil. Very multicultural, multigenerational. Yeah. 20 minutes into the call, she said to her team, and they were all female leaders. She said, I'm a high time to task person. If each of you would hurry up, I can get 30 minutes of my day back. So after the call, I said, why did you do that? And she said, do what? And I said, why did you tell them that your time was more, more valuable than yours, right? Your time is more valuable than their time. That's what you basically said to them. No, I didn't. I said, yeah, you did. You did. And if you look at their faces, they were mortified because they're not a high time culture. I have another leader that I coached and on the, the team workshop, and this is a senior vice president at a major Fortune 50 company. He said, I don't understand. And it was Italian, Spanish, French. He said, I don't understand how you people find the time for lunches, for coffees, for things outside of work. And I, I didn't want to call him out in front of his team, but I didn't have to. Because one of his executives said, very strong woman, she said, I'll tell you why, because it's important. We make the time, we put it in our calendar. We carve out the time, because that's how we build trust. That's how we build credibility. That's how we build respect. That's how we do that. Yeah. And he just sort of didn't say anything. And I thought, wow, you just still don't get it, do you? Yeah. <laughs> right? And that's cultivating that self-awareness. Stefan, this was a fantastic 
um, <laughs> knowledge breaking um, interview. And I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I could talk to you all thank afternoon because um, really I, I just find this very fascinating. And um, I'm always grateful that people step into sharing their gifts, sharing their knowledge with the world. Because like you said, you, you can't coach everyone. And there's a good reason to have a book like this that people can at least get a, a touch of some of the work that you do. Um, there's two questions I love to ask on the show just before we wrap up is, what is one book, other than the one you wrote, of course, that has been transformative in your life? Ooh. <laughs> it's, it's hard to name one book i um uh, my first undergrad degree was in literature so i uh i've read every book from baudelaire to wild to you name it um this may sound a bit cliche i feel like oscar wilde and the picture of dorian gray was one of the most transformative books i ever read and why? Because we're not who we, who we present to the outside world, right? We're not who we present. We present someone, especially today in social media, we present someone very different than who we really are. And part of cultural intelligence is understanding. Deborah needs to know, and it's okay. There's, I mean, I coach people all over the world and they'll say, tell me the right answer. There is no right answer. You you are who you are and that's okay but you need to know who you are so you can flex when you show up so i'm i'm not a high time person i'm a very low time person not typical of us americans or canadians i'm a very high relationship person um so if you weren't you know punching the clock i would talk for 30 more minutes because that's who i am but I know I have to flex. And so the reason I talk about that book is it's, it's, uh, it's not about presenting who you are. It's about knowing who you are and being able to flex right in the moment. And that's the competency. You got to know how to flex when you're on the phone with somebody in New York city and they're high time. Deborah's high time. I'm not going to ask her how she is. I'm not going to care. I'm not going to ask her how her kids are. I'm not going to do any of those things because she's a New Yorker and she's high time and she's low relationship. Right. So it's about flexing. So yeah, that's definitely for me. I mean, I've read every piece of literature I think there is. And that's, that's one that I always come back to. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for that food for thought. Now, the final question is, what does it mean to you to live rich from the inside out? Um, wellness, right? Like wellness and a balance, right? I'm, uh, I work hard. I, I, my brother died when I was five. My father, when I was 12, I have a million challenge sister. I grew up with a, with a woman, my mother, who was in the dedication. I dedicated that to her on the, the practice. Um, yeah, I, I aspire to be that. Um, I think women 
in this culture. I, I, I don't know. I think, especially living in New York, I, I think that women are not, <laughs> they're not valued as much as they should be. And maybe that's because I'm a dad. Maybe it's because, as I said, I, you know, I, uh, grew up with that but yeah yeah I think that's who I aspire to be <laughs> I I'm always fascinated by the responses that people give me because it's such a different definition and what touches their their soul per se as to where that lands and I, I really appreciate you answering those two questions. Now, most importantly, how do people stay in touch with you to understand more about your work? Grab your book, of course. Yeah. Um, and there's a reason I chose a, a woman's eye, right? I think most men would have not done that. And uh, I believe <laughs> women are uh, yeah, the most powerful force in our society. It doesn't matter if we're from Italy or Canada or U.S. And I think as a U.S. American male alpha, if you don't know that and you don't recognize that, then there's something wrong. I went to my eye doctor um, in New York City on the Upper East Side, and she said to me, I haven't seen one of you in a long time. And I said, what do you mean one of me? And she said, you're an alpha X, aren't you? And you mean that in a critical way, don't you? <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I think that, yeah. Uh, so World Trade Resource is the company. Um, you can Google me. You can buy the book on, on Amazon. Simon Schuster is stripping it. You can get it at Barnes and Nobles. You can get it, I heard yesterday, at Target. Um, you know, it's, uh, it really was a homage to my mother. Um, she, I don't know how she did it. And I, it's bothering me because I'm still trying to figure it out. She taught me, it doesn't matter where you're from, what skin color you are, what you do socioeconomically. None of it matters. What matters is right here. It's in your heart. And I don't know. She, she taught me that in a way that um, I, I see that missing in today's world you know and so mm -hmm. much racial bias and prejudice and disrespect and dismissiveness and yeah so yeah thank you Deborah. <laughs> <laughs> you're very welcome and one thing that just in my own opinion I think moms get uh or women in general but I think moms particularly when they're dealing with raising their family and wanting to create something of their own they always find a way to get a second wind to do what's most important to them. I agree. Survivors. <laughs> That's probably why. We're not, we're not good at that as men. No, we're Absolutely. not. I'll own it. We're not. Uh, Women are. Oh, well, so. Stefan, it was a pleasure meeting you. Pleasure having you on the show. Yeah. I'm going to have everything in the show notes so that people can, you know, be in touch with you and reach out and maybe even give us feedback on, on our interview today. And I, I, again, just want to thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate your time. Send me Deborah, your info so I can promote your podcast. Um, I think what you're doing is really special. It's rich. It's empowering. And um, I want to support that. So, yeah. 
Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. And thank you everyone for joining us, whether you're on YouTube or your favorite podcast player. You can also pop over to my website at www.debrakasowski.com where you're going to get your free 10 page PDF called Reset Your Mindset. I might have to take a look at that now from a cultural lens <laughs> there, Stefan. And uh, as always, as Muhammad Gandhi said, be the change you wish to see in the world and go out and make today great. Thank you.